0: Hey, we are back with the second episode of the new year I hope you guys liked Tuesday's episode on the doodler it was a really interesting case to me and I had never heard about it before actually and I researched serial killers a surprising amount so the fact that I had never heard of it was very odd to me so I thought why not cover it This is another case today that I had never heard of before. So I didn't know about this case until Diana, Lynn Harris's daughter, followed me on Twitter. By the way, our Twitter is Great Unsolved, so go follow us there. We engage a lot on there. But this is how I learned of this case. So when I get follows from case pages... I tend to look into the cases right away because that'll determine if I follow them back or I just, I like getting new cases presented to me. So if I get a follow from a case page, I go look into it and see if I can promote the case at all or just what the case is about, honestly. And this one caught my eye right away. So it's a really odd case and it's one that I thought you would all find really interesting But most importantly, this is a case that needs public attention. Her daughter is doing all she can to spread awareness, but I wanted to help as much as I could. It is so wonderful that these victims' families just advocate for them for so long, but a lot of the time it gets overlooked, and it really shouldn't. These are all cases that need to be looked at and examined and brought to public attention, So that's what we're going to do today. We're going to look at the case of Diana Lynn Harris. So Diana Lynn Harris went missing from Big Pine Key, Florida on June 6, 1981, and she is still considered endangered missing. Born on October 6, 1953, she would be 66 if she was still alive today, but was 27 when she went missing. She is described as a white female with reddish blonde hair and blue eyes. She had glasses and dentures when she went missing. I believe it was partial dentures, not full dentures, but I cannot be certain on that. Her DNA is available in CODIS, so if there are Jane Doe's that come about, they can test the DNA against hers to see if it is her body. Since she hasn't been seen or heard from since her disappearance, foul play is suspected. All of her belongings were left behind, which also points towards foul play. If someone runs away, they normally don't leave behind everything. Being born or raised in o- Owoso? Owosso, Michigan, it was a big move to Florida when she lost her job in 1980. She found a home with Gary Vincent Argenzio on Iris Drive in Big Pine Key. Gary was investigated right after the disappearance, obviously, because good police work is looking at the people closest to those who go missing or are murdered. But a week after he was looked at, he fled to Mexico with a stolen boat. After this, he was extradited to Florida, and he did go to prison for theft, but he was never charged in Diana's disappearance, and he died in 1922. So we will sadly never have a confession from him. There was a hole in the wall of his home with blood around it, but it was found to be from a fight prior to her disappearance. So what I understood was... Police established with, like, witnesses and friends of his that had been over at the house that this hole in the wall with blood was from an argument prior to her disappearing because it was there a while before she disappeared. Then again, friends can lie if they want to protect other friends from murder charges, so I don't really know what to make of this. I would just take it with a grain of salt. When Diana went missing, her children were visiting their father in Michigan, but she kept in touch often. She also kept in touch with many of her family members often, and this is what caused her mother to report her missing when she didn't attend her sister's wedding. So, like, not calling for a few days is one thing. You're an adult. you got things going on. But not showing up to your sister's wedding is a pretty big thing, and that's when everybody learned she had disappeared. It is believed that this disappearance could be connected to the disappearance of Thomas Stump in 1955. This is because many of the same people were questioned in both cases. Um, But we'll get into that case a little later. At the time she went missing, she worked two jobs that both started in February of 1981. One at No Name Pub and one at Sugarloaf Key Lodge. So her daughter is, as I stated, a huge advocate for her case. And I did talk to her daughter, and she gave me permission to read a fairly long post on realcrimes.com about her mother's case. Um, She wrote it, so she did have the authority to do that. So here we go. We're going to jump right in. My mother, Diana Lynn Harris, 27, disappeared from Big Pine Key, Florida, In October 1981. I was 10 years old at the time. My brother and I were in Michigan visiting our father. After our mother's disappearance, our grandmother raised us. When I turned 17, I returned to Florida to begin my personal investigation of my mom's disappearance. I've been at it ever since. Information I've recently uncovered leads me to suspect that my mother may have become a threat to an ongoing major drug operation and that she may not have been the only person to lose her life for that reason. I recently ran names connected to mom's disappearance through a search engine. When I ran the name Mark Rippen, an ex-convict who was questioned in regards to my mom's case, I landed on the Real Crimes website. My heart dropped into my shoes when I discovered that Mark Rippin was also questioned as a possible suspect in the Tom Stump missing persons case and that several other individuals linked to my mother's case are also linked to Tom Stump's case. On the website, I learned that Tom Stump disappeared from Sugarloaf Key, Florida, in 1995. Like my mom, his body was never found. At the time of his disappearance, Tom was married to Mark Rippon's ex-wife, Bernie rippon stump A few days prior to vanishing, Tom was telling people that he suspected Bernie of having an affair with a radio talk show host named Bill Becker. As soon as she was legally able to do so, Bernie married Becker. I recognized some of the names on the website and the message board as people my mom knew back in 1981. Mark Rippon, the ex-con, Mark's then-wife, Bernie, and their attorney friend, Mitchell Dunker were part of a tight-knit group of friends who partied together, and some of whom actually lived together during that time period. My mom was introduced to that group by a new boyfriend. Gary Vincente Argenzio, who I've now found out was another ex convict and a close friend of Mark Rippon. Mark Rippon was then and still is a close friend of Bernie's fourth and current husband, Bill Becker, who was Bernie's linen boyfriend in 1980 and again began living with her after Tom Stumped vanished in 1995. In October, 1981, Mom phoned a friend in Michigan from a hot tub at attorney Mitchell Denker's party house on Big Pine Key and told her that a big drug drop-off was scheduled and she was afraid the phone might be tapped. She also mentioned guard dogs. That's the last anybody ever heard from her. I've since been told by someone in law enforcement that certain police officers attended functions at that party house, and that some lost their jobs because of the activities there. My grandmother filed missing persons reports in both Michigan and Monroe County, Florida. Nobody at the party house reported mom missing. One week after mom vanished, Gary Argenzio stole a boat that belonged to a man named Robert Thompson. Mitchell Dunker told me that Gary also stole two motorcycles from him and possibly a gun. Mark Rippon has since told me that he and Dunker owned a boat together, and Dunker once allowed Gary to take this boat out. And Gary ran with it, ran it with no oil, and blew the motor. That is why Gary took Robert Thompson's boat instead of Dunker's. Another vehicle that was missing was a car that belonged to Mom's friend Donna. Donna thought it was taken by a man named Mark who lived in. No Name Key, which is where Mark Rippen and his wife, Bernie, lived at that time. However, she also added that she believed that man was Mitchell Dunker's cousin, who worked at Dunker's law office. It's possible she may have confused Mark Rippin with Mitchell Dunker's cousin, Michael Gilbert, who died of a drug overdose in the 80s. But which one was it? After Argenzio ran off to Mexico, Dunker allegedly found Donna's car on a side road. He has stated that he believes Gary Argenzio took the car, perhaps to transport Mom's body, and claims to have checked it for forensic evidence and found none. Denker is an attorney, not a forensic expert. Why didn't he turn the car over to authorities for a professional workup? Detective Richard Conrady and Detective Lynn McNeil of the Monroe County Sheriff's Department were originally the lead detectives in Mom's case. In june nineteen ninety five, when Mom's case was being reinvestigated as a possible homicide, Detective Phil Harold questioned Mitchell Denker. Denker told Detective Harold that Mom was murdered and suggested she speak with Argenzio's friend Mark Rippen. Rippin told him he believed Argenzio killed Mom and dumped her body in the ocean. In july nineteen eighty two, Gary Argenzio was arrested in Mexico, but he wasn't charged with Mom's murder. Instead, he was charged and found guilty of stealing Robert Thompson's boat. Mitchell Dunker's cousin, Michael Gilbert, a member of Dunker's law firm, defended Gary Argenzio pro bono. Argenzio was found guilty and sentenced to five years in prison. In May 1990, I contacted Mitchell Dunker by phone, and he informed me that he'd sold the party house back in 1984. He said he was going to Turkey on business for two weeks and to call him when he got back. When I called him again, he acted like he'd never before talked to me. In 1922, Gary Argenzio was convicted of another felony. Five days later, he died in his Broward County home in Dania, Florida, allegedly of pneumonia. But I wasn't going to give up. Approximately January 1995, I again contacted Mitchell Denker, this time, he told me that he thought Gary Argenzio might have buried my mother in Dunker's backyard. As a result of Dunker's new statement, I was able to convince the sheriff's department to reactivate my mother's case. When questioned in June of 1955, 1995 by Detective Harald, Dunker, said it would have been impossible to bury a body in his yard because of the guard dogs and the coral. Detective Harold told me the yard had been cemented over so it could not be searched or dug up. Mitchell Denker asked Harold if his original statement from 1981 still existed. When Detective Harold assured him it did not, Denker and Mark Rippon informed him that Argenzio had admitted the smashing mom's head into the wall of Denker's house. Both men stated they saw the hole in the wall with blood splatters. But Dunker described the hole as being in his bedroom, and Ripon described it as being by the back door. Detective Lynn McNeil, who investigated the case in 1981, recalled no such damage. She also told me that she and Detective Conrady had checked the woods in the yard for any evidence and had found none. How could the backyard have had woods on it when Dunker said it was solid coral? In 1995, at approximately the same time my mother's case was reactivated, Tom Stump disappeared from his home and Sugarloaf Key. The Monroe County Sheriff's Department was investigating both the Stump case and Mom's case simultaneously and was interrogating Mark Rippon in regard to both missing persons cases. Yet apparently, nobody found anything in the slightest bit suspicious about the fact that the same man was linked to both cases. In the summer of 2003, Mitchell Dunker was convicted of two felonies: transporting monetary instruments and perjury. He was sentenced to five months in prison and disbarred in the state of Florida. This proof that Dunker was not as much of a crook as Mark Rippon and Gary Argenzio caused me to start wondering if all three might have been involved in my mother's disappearance. I immediately requested that Detective James Norman of the Monroe County Sheriff's Department provide me with reports from their 1981 and 1995 investigations. Detective Norman informed me that the files from 1981 did not exist. I was not surprised to hear this because my grandma had been trying to get those files for years and had been told they didn't exist. I was stunned, however, to be told that the former sheriff, William Freeman, had deliberately destroyed all case files from the years 1981 to 1983 and some from 1984. Detective Norman said he couldn't say why for sure, but had heard a rumor about a big drug bust called the Big Pine 29 that occurred on Big Pine Key during that time period. Mitchell Denker was the defense attorney for one of the suspected drug smugglers. I contacted Sheriff Richard Roth to ask him about my mom's files. Sheriff Roth told me that in 1981, he was a detective and remembers this incident. He said it was uncommon thing for the sheriff to get rid of, or it wasn't an uncommon thing for the sheriff to get rid of old case files. However, when mom's files were destroyed, they were not at all old. My grandmother was still communicating with the detectives about the case. But I did receive the reports from the 1995 investigation, which is how I got the names to run through the search engine. When Mark Rippen's name took me, took me to the Tom Stump case, I posted a question on the message board asking if anyone had heard of Mitchell Dunker. Someone responded by quoting a post in which he cryptically asked, what's the connection? Many, the shark hunter, Mitchell Dunker, the lawyer, I've since found out that Manatilio Manny Pluig, a shark hunter who swims with the sharks, was hired by Bernie Ripon Stump Becker <laughs> to aid in the search for Tom. The answer to Rippon's question could well be both men swim with the sharks. One literally, one figuratively. Someone else posted a quote from Bernie's deposition in which she admitted to living in Mitchell Dunker's house. Since Bernie was married to Mark Ripon at that time, That would seem to suggest that they were both on the premises when Mom vanished. Bernie had since told me she knew my mom, and my mom showed her photos of her brother and me. Yet Bernie didn't bother to report Mom missing, even though Bernie's own husband said he saw a hole in the wall that was made by Mom's head. Another thing I find bewildering is that when questioned by police in 1995, Mitchell Denker, a practicing attorney who should know the law, stated that in his opinion there was more than enough evidence to indict Gary Argenzio for my mom's murder, but the Sheriff's Department hadn't seemed interested in pursuing it. He specifically cited mom's disappearance and missing body in Argenzio's flight with Robert Thompson's boat. Yet back in 1982, when Argenzio was tried for sealing that boat, Mitchell Denker's cousin, member of his own law firm defended Argenzio for free, and nobody even mentioned my missing mother. In fact, Mark Rippon testified in Argenzio's behalf. My mother was a wonderful woman, and I loved her dearly, but she led a difficult life. After an abusive marriage that ended in divorce, she witnessed her brother shoot himself in the mouth. She attempted to self-medicate by smoking marijuana, but that did little to erase the grisly vision. She relocated to Florida in an effort to escape that awful memory and continued to smoke marijuana, but she never used hard drugs until she met Gary Argenzio. I doubt that she had any idea what she was getting into when she started her association with that group of people. I had my mother for only 10 years, but I thank God for every one of them. I have beautiful memories of my life with her. She worked hard, cooked wonderful food, and was never too busy to play with my brother and me. She was very affectionate mother, and no matter how tired she was or how weighed down by worries, she gave us unstinting love and affection. My mom was my world. For 25 years, I've been trying to figure out what happened to her, and I will not stop until I get an answer that makes sense. So, that was filled with a lot of, like, the witnesses were contradicting themselves. Like, one minute they would be all on the same side, the next they'd be like, oh, I think he killed her, or I know he killed her, or, I saw this, I saw that. So that makes it really interesting and really questionable because we don't really know who's telling the truth here, but somebody knows something, and her daughter and the family just really deserves to know what happened to Diane so if you have any information, call 305-289-2410 and they will receive tips or any information on the case. Now, when I was talking to Diane's daughter, she also informed me that before Thomas Stump's mother died, I believe, she gave Diane's daughter the like ability or reign over his case so she's like the advocate for his case as well because the same people were being questioned so it is thought that these cases are connected so I would like to take the next few minutes to look at Thomas Stump's case to see how and like why they may be connected so Thomas Stump went missing from Summerlin Key Florida on July 25th 1995 at this time, he was 41 years old, and if he was alive today, he would be 66. He was described as 5 foot 10 and 175 pounds. He was a white male with brown hair and brown eyes. A big identifier would have been an appendectomy scar on his abdomen, and he wears contact lenses. When he went missing, he was wearing a tan shirt and shorts and work boots. He disappeared when he left his family's home to go to the gas station and the post office in preparation for a family trip with his wife and two daughters. 4.30 p.m. that same day, his wife called his mother saying she thought Tom killed himself in the woods. She also apparently disclosed that she had asked for divorce, but later in the investigation, she denied it. She then called the rental car place that they had a car from, requesting new keys because the old ones were lost, when she said her husband went into the ocean and drowned himself. So, she gives two different scenarios of him killing himself here, when she doesn't actually know what happened to him or where he is. Before he disappeared, Tom had suspected his wife was having an affair with a radio person and told his brother about these problems. The Manny thought she was having an affair with moved into the home a few weeks after Thomas went missing Tom was declared legally dead in 2000 and then these two married this was the wife's third husband from before you know Mark Rippon was the first Thomas was the second and now there's radio guy Tom's wife also stated that Tom collected guns and like shot him off a lot in the woods near them he also hid them in the woods near them, which seems odd, but to each their own. She and her new husband have both passed lie detector tests, but Thomas's mom believes Tom foul play. So there is also a large post on real crimes about Tom Stump. So here we go. Note from Real Crimes, Rose Stump wrote and signed this report, we have no legal right to alter it without her signed permission, however Rose is now deceased. So this is, his mother wrote this and signed it legally to them, um, and it cannot be changed now. So here we go. My oldest son, Tom Stump, 41, disappeared from his home on Summerlin Key, Florida, on June 24th, 1995. In 2002, when I originally posted Tom's story on this website, I had no preconceived idea about what happened to my son. I just knew the circumstances of Tom's disappearance were suspicious and there were many questions that needed answers. Since then, however, I've received information that Tom may have become a threat to a major drug operation that links the Florida Keys with New Orleans. That may or may not be true, but it has opened my mind to some new possibilities. Especially since learned about another drug related missing person's case, Diana Harris, that involves several of the same people who are linked to Tom's case. I'm receptive to receiving further information by private email sent CO The Real Crimes website. I talked with Tom by phone the day before he vanished. He had just rented a van to take his wife, Bernie, and two daughters, Callie, aged twelve and Molly, aged eight, On a vacation trip, he said he would call me as soon as they got back from their trip. That evening, Tom and Bernie took the girls and two of their friends out to dinner to celebrate Molly's 8th birthday. The next morning, Tom got up at dawn to put gas in his pickup truck without Bernie's knowledge. Later, he went to the bank and the post office to stop the mail. About 4.30 that afternoon, Callie phoned to tell me they thought, her dad committed suicide. She said dad walked into the woods, walked out, walked into the woods, walked out, walked into the woods, and stayed. When I started to ask questions, Callie gave the phone to her mother. Bernie told me that she had found somebody else and had asked Tom for a divorce. She later denied saying that. At seven thirty PM, Bernie contacted the Hearts Rental Service office and told them she needed a new set of keys because her husband had lost the first set while swimming in a canal. She was told to call back the next day. In her second call, she said her keys were lost when her husband went out in a boat and committed suicide. At 7 53 p.m., she told another individual at the rental agency that she thought her husband had drowned himself in the ocean. My youngest son, Chad, and I immediately flew to Florida Tom had discussed his marital problems with Chad and, as confirmed later by Tom's business partner, Scott Haskell, Tom suspected Bernie of seeing Bill Becker, a prominent radio personality, man about town, and friend-to-many law enforcement, someone with a lot of clout. According to a newspaper article, Bill makes or breaks the politicians in the Keys. A search had been organized, and 26 of Tom's friends and neighbors were combing the woods. One of Bernie's ex-husbands, An ex-con by the name of Mark Rippon, who Bernie still considered her very dear friend, was also involved in the search. When interviewed by police, the children gave different stories. Bonnie continued to remain, maintain that her family, that her, sorry, oh my goodness, that her father walked into the woods. But Molly said he drove off in a car, although neither of the cars were missing. The dog that detectives used to track Tom's scent did not go into the woods. Instead, it went directly to the road. Bernie stated that in the early morning hours, Molly walked to their bedroom and found Tom cleaning his guns. Tom was a gun collector and owned six guns, according to Bernie. One of those guns, a Glock, was missing. Bernie told the detective that Tom told her he had hidden one or more guns in the woods, but hadn't told her where they were. That detective told me privately that something didn't seem right, and I agreed. Bernie would not allow me to talk to the children and was not happy when I was interviewed by Detective Penley. After taping interviews with Bernie, the girls, and me, Penley stated in her report, The complaint followed me out of the car and seemed extremely nervous about my conversation with the victim's mother. Detective Penley also stated, Compliance demeanor was very upbeat, and she spoke of getting on with her life. A few days after Tom disappeared, his business partner and employee went to Tom's house to get tools from the company truck. As they were leaving, they noticed that the recycle bin contained champagne bottles, and the trash bin held black gift wrap paper and black bows. Somebody was celebrating something, Tom's partner observed. This information appears in Detective Penley's 81495 report. A man who worked at the Kujo Key landfill contacted police to report a strange occurrence, in which a woman arrived at the landfill with a pickup truck that matched the description of Tom's pickup. The man said he was helping the woman empty the truck and was struck by the unusual nature of the items she was getting rid of. A marriage license, photo albums containing wedding pictures, and personal items that obviously belonged to a man. The woman didn't give her name, paid with cash so there was no receipt, And all the items were bulldozed into the transfer truck. Six days after Tom's disappearance, Bernie left on vacation with the children. She returned home by herself. And the girls went to Chicago to visit their other grandparents. Bill Becker then began sleeping over at her house. My husband and I hired a private investigator. He is the one who found out about Tom's preparations for a trip with his family on the day he became missing. That he filled his pickup truck with gas, went to the bank, and stopped the mail. The sheriff's department supplied me with copies of their interviews with no problem. But when I requested the May to August calls to and from Tom and Bernie's home, which Detective Penley had subpoenaed, there was no information about any calls beyond the beginning of July. When I questioned the sheriff about this, he stated in a letter, I have been assured that if they are not included, they do not exist. That makes no sense at all. In light of all the calls I know were made to and from the house in the days surrounding Tom's disappearance, many of those calls were to me at my home in Ohio. In March 1997, I placed an ad in two newspapers that serviced the Florida Keys, Citizen and the Noter. The ad read, a reward is being offered for information leading to the arrest and conviction of person or persons responsible in the disappearance of Tom Stump on July 24th, 1995. All information confidential. Send information to... And then it had the address of a post office box. I included Tom's picture. In May 1997, I called the citizen and asked them to run the ad a second time. I was told by Randy Erickson, who was in charge of advertising, that the state attorney had forbidden him to run the ad again. When I contacted state attorney Kirk Zulek, he said that his office had nothing to do with that decision and that Mr. Erickson informed him that the paper made the decision not to run the ad. I also received a letter from Bernie's attorney saying I should not run ads seeking information about Tom's disappearance. In 2000, Tom was declared legally dead and Bill Becker and Bernie were married. In February of 2002, Detective Jay Norman gave Bernie and Bill lie detector tests. Reportedly, they passed. Detective Norman's official conclusion was Stump committed suicide, Stump has relocated to an unknown area, or Stump died as a result of an accident, negligence, or homicide. What kind of conclusion is that? Who benefited from Tom's death? His wife received 150000 in insurance money plus the house, savings, etc., His partner, Scott Haskell received the stocks and bonds that were in his and Tom's name and also several acres of land. It's impossible for me to believe that Tom committed suicide and hid his own body. It is equally hard to believe that he deserted his family. He was not that kind of person. Tom was co-owner of a successful construction business and was proud of all that he and his partner had accomplished. He was a very hard worker, but above all, a dedicated father. He went to work early each morning so that he could be there when his daughters came home from school. He was devoted to those little girls, helped them with their homework, prepared their dinners, made sure they did their chores, even if his marriage to Bernie was rocky. He still had those children to live for. To walk out on his family, or worse, commit suicide on his youngest daughter's birthday, there's no way in the world he would have done that. My daughter-in-law and I had always gotten along. Since Tom's disappearance, neither Bernie nor my granddaughters will speak to me. Not only have I lost a son, I have lost an entire family. But whether Bernie and her new husband like it or not, I am and always will be Tom Stump's mother, and I will continue to search and dig until I find out what happened to my son. So now there's an update from April 2004, and it says this. In March 2004, I was contacted by a woman named Christine Hill, whose mother, Diane, Diana Harris, disappeared from Big Pine Key, Florida, in October 1981 after phoning an out-of-state friend from a party house belonging to attorney Mitchell Dunker, Diana told her friend a big drug delivery was scheduled. The guard dogs were out, and she was afraid the phones were tapped. Like Tom, her body was never found. Christine had been running names from her mother's case, from her mother's case report through a search engine, and the name Mark Rippon took her to the Tom Stump case on the Real Crimes website. From information in Tom's case report and on his message board, Christine learned that Mark Rippon was questioned in both Diana's and Tom's missing persons cases, and that other people who were linked to Diana's case were also linked to Tom's case. Among those people is Bernie Rippon Stump Becker, who was married to Mark Rippon when Diana disappeared and was married to Tom Stump when Tom disappeared, and who has stated on record that she once lived in Mitchell Dunker's house. In 2003, Dunker was convicted of two felonies, transporting monetary instruments and perjury, sentenced to prison and disbarred in the state of Florida. Yes, In a town near us, they are putting down bricks around the downtown with family names on them. We had one with Tom's name. I guess this will be the closest to a tombstone we can give him. This memory stone to honor Tom's life on earth has the symbol of a buckeye leaf to signify Tom's closeness to his Ohio roots. May Tom rest in peace. So this is also another really sad case. Um, We don't know what happened to either of them, and obviously the families are speculating that they're both related to drug activity, but there's never been any hard evidence found for this. However, it really does seem like these cases are connected, because, I mean, if the same people are being questioned in both cases, then these people had to have run in somewhat of the same circles. These disappearances did happen quite a few years like apart from each other so I'm not sure if Diana and Tom knew each other or not but they did know the same people. So Christine Hill is Diana's daughter and she is really working hard to get justice and tips for both of these cases So once again, if you have any information, call 305-289-2410 because she would really appreciate it and these are cases that deserve to be solved. This is it for this episode. I hope this sheds some light on some new cases for all of you and I really hope you look into these cases and see if you can find anything because new eyes are always helpful on old cases and... Maybe you even know a tip. Anyways, there was the phone number in the episode. So if you have any information, call them. They are also on Twitter. As I said, that's how I learned of this case because her daughter followed me. So they are on Twitter as well. Also follow us on Twitter at Great Unsolved and we can always help put you in contact with her. Um... Anyways, this is the end of our second episode of 2020. On Tuesday, we will be back with another missing persons case. This is a child missing persons case. And it really seems like the stepmom in this case is the culprit. Like, it's another case where it seems we know exactly who did it, but they can't really convict them. So it should be interesting So tune in Tuesday for the case of Chiron Horman, a missing child. With one of the best savings rates in America, banking with Capital One is the easiest decision in the history of decisions. Even easier than choosing Slash to be in your band. Next up for lead guitar.